continuing with uh, Vipassana insight meditation reflections on that on Nietzsche on impermanence the the perception of time for example is is uh, those reflecting on that this morning something to contemplate how much we our whole mind uh, attitude civilization is based on on a kind of believing in time as a as a real world the, the past the future and because of that we 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 can uh, carry resentments from the past and uh, and of course that affects us in the present but if we don't realize what's happening then then always we we can just uh, you know we our mind is is always planning looking forward or dreading the future or remembering the past the future is the unknown so i mean this is to, to recognize that, that we don't know the future. It could be anything. Tomorrow could bring anything. Success, failure, praise, blame, mixtures of the whole lot. It might be the end of the world tomorrow. Maybe the, the, uh, the sky will fall in. Maybe the planet will, will fall out of the solar system. Maybe the sun will, will uh, go out. unknown and the past is when we think when we tend to we look forward maybe to a golden age in the future some a we think of hopefully that we will um, that we're evolving to some some kind of thing where everything's going to be all right we're going to reach a, a kind of peak and and stabilize ourselves on a peak of some sort And I think in, in uh, here in Britain, the uh, the having many of you, and not all that many of you, were where some of you were born before the British Empire fell in, and so <laughs> and and most of you were born after that. So it was, uh, you know, you can see that uh, things like that reached their peak. When I was born in the 30s, uh, Britain was the, was the superpower, was the world power. And it was the, you know, I was born in America, but then Britain was the, the world leader, the superpower of that time. And then after the world World War Two, it uh, it just uh, everything were kind of slipped away. And that's a reflection on how you know when, when the mind thinks in terms of you get fixed ideas about things, and and it's uh, and and it's hard to to change those. It's hard, I think, for for like 
people, British people who've, who, who were brought up the time of the empire to, to be able to accept the, that it no longer is that way because the mind wants to hold on to, to, uh, to maybe the, the past when things were, when you remember maybe a time in the past where uh, they, we could, you felt you were on a winning team or that everything was much better. Or maybe there's this hope that sometime in the future we'll reach this, this golden age, the Aquarian age. But the present is where everything's taking place, here and now, is where we're breathing, where we're feeling, where we're uh, experiencing life. In the, the past, is we can, we can think about it, we can remember it, but it is merely just a function of the mind, isn't it? The past is a function of our mind, and the future is, is the unknown, the, the, the mind that doesn't know. And the past is what we remember. So pointing to the the this is a the realm we're in is a realm of knowing things, consciousness, knowing as a subject, as a subjective experience. So we're taking knowing to to the to, to the knowing of Dhamma or the way it is rather than knowing about things. Like most of us were educated to know about the British Empire, the Roman Empire, the time of the Buddha, the time of Jesus Christ. And we know about them. We've, we've all studied uh, those kind of, the histories. Uh, we, in back in the 50s, I remember we all thought that, that modern science was going to solve all our problems. Modern psychiatry was going to cure all mental illness. It's like we'd we'd gotten rid of tuberculosis and and pneumonia. We could uh, we could then uh, cure all sicknesses, all ailments and mental illnesses through the wizardry of empirical science and modern medicine. There was that in the fifties, nineteen fifties. There was a kind of expectation that. Uh, we were really on the way to this this golden age, and now we look at it in the nineties, and we rather the, the predictions, the gloom, doom, the 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 amount, the world population, the the pollution, the the AIDS epidemic, the the strange sicknesses that never existed back in the nineteen fifties, and Gosh. <laughs> because we can think that in the future lies everything is go everything good is going to it's all going to kind of be there. Hope, expectation. Or we can think when we die, if we if we live a good life, then we'll go to a nice place forever and live happily ever after in some heavenly state. Put it off for the future, in other words, for when we die and go to heaven, or the golden age in the future, or, or tomorrow, or look forward to the next 
the holiday or the, uh, you know, the next, uh, you know, hope that you might win the lottery or you might, something wonderful might happen, but it might not. The future is, is what we don't know. So it's the possibilities and whether we tend to be optimistic or pessimistic, we, when we think about the future, we might find some kind of happiness out of being optimistic. Everything's going to be all right. We're going to everything's getting better and better in every way. Or the pessimist thinking it's it's terrible what's happening and it's going to get worse and worse. But we can know that in the present, this might be what we're feeling. Uh, the future is what we don't know, and maybe we're we're pessimistic or optimistic about it, or we don't even bother to consider it. Maybe we're just thinking of the next holiday, or the next thing after the retreat. So this is why in meditation we're emphasizing the here and now, the 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 uh, dhamma of the real dhamma of the way it is, and and you can and you, to be able to to use this time well in meditation is to is to contemplate it in your own experience that you're having at this on this retreat, the the things that come up in your mind the the hopes uh, or the expectations or the fears or the anxieties about the future. Put them in the context of Dhamma rather than than just being caught up into either indulging or suppressing them. Or memories of the past. To to see that the the memories that what you remember is is uh, or the things of the past are a memory in the present. And this isn't a dismissal either of their emotional power, but to to note the connection of when we remember unpleasant things of the past, we we have we have emotional reactions. And the future, we have these emotions of like expecting or hoping, anticipating. If you know what that kind of mental state is in the present, like I hope it. Future, hoping is like this, and there's a, a kind of you don't know, but you hope. It feels like this. The hope is a you're kind of contemplating hope for something right now, and just feel what it's like. It's that it's like this, isn't it? Hoping is is the mind uh, kind of doesn't know, but there's a, a kind of hope always implies some kind of positiveness. Or dread, we think. The future, oh. When I, when I, when I finish this retreat and I go back, I've got to pay the bills and <laughs> hope somebody's fed the cat and <laughs> dread all the, getting back to the to the routine, dreading maybe having to deal, go back to maybe some difficult problems you you perceive, you know, family problems or professional problems, dreading uh, having to do this or that, 
Like when I think of the appeal in November, it's dread. <laughs> dread is like that, isn't it? It's, hope is more... Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're investing in the mental state that we create in our mind. And it's about the unknown, the future. And then the the past is a. Uh, I remember in noting in the early days of my monastic life, I used to have a kind of set of happy memories that when I'd get bored with all this, I could kind of entertain myself by remembering pleasant things of the past, like a kind of file cabinet of happy memories you could pull out and uh, and when you and you could just kind of distract yourself with with happy memories or sometimes you'd you'd remember uh, the the unhappy times and like I was telling you about the experience in the military of, of having bitterness and resentment for some things that happened when you how dare they do that and how could this is unfair that things like this should happen and and I'll never forgive them for doing that it's uh, despicable you, uh, you get indignant just remembering some something that happened 40 years ago because it is really quite timeless a memory isn't isn't uh, 40 years itself is it it's it's just something, a function of the mind that we remember things. And we remember usually extremities. You don't remember what you had for lunch on 21 September 40 years ago. Unless it was, you nearly died from it. <laughs> or, it or it was so utterly delicious you, you could never forget it. Uh, if it was just porridge and prunes or something. <laughs> <laughs> so most of our life in the past is, is we don't remember it all. It's, it's uh, totally forgotten. But the kind of peak moments or the the depressing, uh, despairing moments we remember through memory has that that it's usually about extremity so in uh, Vipassana meditation we're remembering uh, no, no longer looking trying to remember the extremity but remember the the norm the breath remember the breathing remember the posture sitting standing walking lying down remember the the sound of silence Remember to contemplate the impermanence of things. Because we, we can, we can uh, because memories have a kind of static quality to them. When you remember something in the past, it's, it's very fixed in its, uh, you know, it's like a cutout or a statue or something. It's, it's not uh, particularly kind of, you know, it doesn't have much 
life to it. It just it maybe arouses emotion. But remembering the here and now, that's why we write now. Now is the knowing. Now there's the sitting. Now is the breathing. To, to recollect, remember, and recall is establishing this, this mindfulness about the way things are. Then from there, it's not to just to, to think that for the rest of our lives we're just going to, to contemplate our breath. Because that we, you know, that's not, uh, I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's not the way things are. But it is a, it is, it is a centering practice, isn't it? Bringing you, reminding you of the present because we're so used to being living in the past and the future. Giving time, the time, such an importance in our lives as if it were the real world, the, the reality of everything. But in the timeless of the present, you say, timelessness is in the present. Eternity is now. Things like this one can, can reflect upon. And you, you hear this in various poetry. In poetry oftentimes tries to express this, this truth. Now the Buddha used suffering as the first noble truth. The, is, is the essential teaching of the Buddha is, the, uh, is called the Four Noble Truths. And these are not metaphysical truths. To point out the difference between Buddhism and Christianity, for example, you see Christianity is a theistic approach. So it, it, it approaches uh, from the metaphysical uh, doctrines. So, to be a Christian you say, I believe in God. And that is, that's approaching your religious path from, from, the, from a metaphysical belief. And Hinduism is highly metaphysical in its, in its uh, emphasis. And theistic religions are the emphasis is on belief in a higher form or in an ultimate reality, some kind of metaphysical doctrine that is the essential that we must we must uh, believe in and grasp. And the Buddha didn't didn't proclaim a metaphysical doctrine. He he started out on the opposite end with existential experience there is suffering so when you're trying to compare Buddhism with a theistic religion you you can really uh, get it all wrong because it's it's uh, it's a different approach it's the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning and uh, from a metaphysical approach you you deduct I believe in God and and then the the logic follows from that, from the top down, and the uh, the Buddhist approach is there. Is, there is suffering, which is the 
most common human experience. We all, every human being experiences suffering. And then you in, induct from, 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 uh, from suffering. There is this suffering and, and then you examine it. You, you go to the suffering, you examine it, you investigate suffering till you see the way of non-suffering or the deathless or the metaphysical reality. So to the, to the Buddhists, the metaphysical real, reality is a realization rather than a doctrine. The aim is to, to not preconceive it or to define it or to say really very much about it, but to point to the, where the problem lies, our deluded state, and, and how to, to deal with our delusion so that we free the mind from the deludedness and then where then there is the realization of ultimate reality. So the four noble truths, they're noble truths rather than metaphysical truths. They the first one is a, is just pointing to the experience of suffering. The dukkha. And dukkha is a Pali word which means what we can't bear. It has this sense of this du prefix du is a is a, always conveys some negative thing. Su is always good. Like sumato, is <laughs> means wise, sage, and if you say dumato, it means fool. It does in Pali if you say dumato. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> if I start acting foolish, you, you can refer to me as Ajahn Dumato. <laughs> but the dukkha is, is a sense of, of uh, what we can't bear, can't stand. And so there, there is this feeling in the human experience, isn't it, of a uh, we can't bear things, we can't take it, we can't stand it. Uh, this, this is a common human experience of feeling that, that the pain we have or the problems of life or the, or the uh, possibilities or everything is something we can't stand, we can't bear it. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be too much for us. It's like when you're dealing with physical pain, your reaction is always, I can't stand it. I want to get rid of it. And as you, uh, and as you begin to investigate physical pain, you find out you can stand it if you have to. It's something you can stand. But the, the suffering is the feeling of I can't bear it. I don't want it. Or suffering is wanting something that you don't have. That I want something, I'm, I'm lacking something, I need something that, that I don't have right now and I'm suffering because I, I want it. I want something that I don't have. Or wanting to, we'll say, the, the desires of, uh, desire is always a it, it, and desire and, and dukkha are, are interchangeable and, 
and as concepts and dunha is in the second noble truth the the origin of suffering is this this desire grasping desire for things like the uh, gama dunha sensual desire always wanting uh, just sense pleasures wanting the pleasures of life through the senses and and always seeking you know being caught up in just sensuality and seeking pleasure through the senses is 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 uh, gama dunha bhava dunha is the desire for becoming something it's more like wanting to succeed desire to to be respected desire to to win the prize desire to get enlightened desire to to get something or, or attain something more on the level of of uh, of becoming than on the level of, of uh, sensual uh, sensuality and then the third kind of desire is vipavadanha which is desire to get rid of things desire to get rid of your anger desire to get rid of of your problems desire to get rid of things you don't like desire to get rid of your depression or desire to get rid of uh, bad thoughts the vipavadanha so so desire has there's three aspects to desire the for sense pleasure for becoming and for getting rid of now the in the first noble truth is the is the desire, is the uh, this the statement there is this suffering and suffering is to be understood is the insight so the buddha's advice is to understand suffering which means to open to the suffering to kind of understand under it to to embrace it because usually when we're suffering we, we're trying to get rid of it run away from it ignore it so in, in the first noble truth the buddha said understand the suffering like stand under it accept it it feels this way to to bear it rather than to think i can't bear it i don't want it accept it and uh, and let it be what it is <coughs> then you understand it you're you're willing to accept it rather than to just react to it with the suffering with the compounded compounded suffering of i can't bear it i don't want it so we have the insight into the, that there is this suffering though so this suffering is isn't just a kind of a um, belief in buddhist teachings or having read a book about the four noble truths that you you believe them the four noble truths are to be investigated therefore meditation therefore reflection they're tools to use and this is very much uh, lumpur cha's emphasis in his in, in the life we led in the monastery in thailand was on this this uh, using these four noble truths as a continuous reflection for what was happening to us
For example, uh, just in uh, when I lived there uh, and was a newly ordained monk, then I created a lot of suffering for myself because I would be resistant or proud or opinionated or all these things or lazy. I'd uh, I'd complain. I'd uh, I wouldn't want to do things that I was expected to do. And when and by contemplating this, then I began to see I was creating suffering around my life. When I contemplated the life itself, uh, say in the monastery, I could say, I, I the, you know the one way is to blame everything. Say my suffering is due to this monastery. Uh, my suffering is because it's too hot here or my suffering is because they want me to do things I don't want to do and they're being unfair or they don't really appreciate me or understand me or I could blame blame the situation for my suffering <clears throat> but in a in a Buddhist monastery it's it's hard it's not it's difficult to do because like basically it was you know it was quite a nice place and uh, teacher was very wise and people were generally quite good to me and it was, uh, it was not, you know, when you really examined it uh, and thinking, that, you know, if you could really, you know, really make a case to blaming it for your suffering, you realize it, there wasn't a, a good case. There wasn't, the suffering wasn't really due to the monastery or anyone in it. It was due to me uh, feeling annoyed with this, not wanting to do that. And uh, so like this is like investigating, looking into what is suffering anyway and, and what. Is the suffering that's caused externally, is that the real suffering? Is the suffering, the real suffering what we create around life, about the experiences of life. Say like if uh, terminal illness, people get uh, like cancer or AIDS or find that their, their life is going to be terminated and then they can say, they can say, um, this is ruining my life, I'm suffering because of this disease. And that sounds reasonable enough, doesn't it? But so, that seems to be true in a way. That if we didn't have this disease, we'd, life would be much better. We, we think I wouldn't be suffering like this if I didn't have this disease. Or, what is the real suffering? Is it the is it the disease, or is it the fear and the resentment towards the disease? This is a, something to question and ask yourself in in your own life. Is, is the suffering really uh, the things around us that impinge or irritate us or is it what we, our aversion, our, uh, our resentment, our resistance, our stubbornness that we create around it? Now when people change their attitude, say people that have say cancer 
change their attitude towards not resenting, not hating the thing, then they, they still they still have the cancer, but they don't have the, the all the suffering around it. They have the sensations and all the the uh, the, the discomfort, the pain, the the that is but that we can bear actually. We have an uh, amazing ability to bear those things. Uh, but what we can't bear, the real dukkha, what we can't bear is our own fears and desires, and those those make life unbearable. And the thing you realize is that what life brings to us, you, most of it we can bear, we can stand it, if we have the right attitude. And uh, but we think we can't stand it, and then we suffer. We can suffer even with a with a toothache or a or just you know people commit students commit suicide because they fail their examinations. When I was in the University of California in Berkeley, they, there's this Campanilla Tower, this beautiful uh, tower in the campus of the university with a lift that goes up to the top. And they used to have it, it used to be quite open. You could go up and kind of look uh, out around, out into the bay across the San Francisco. I went back a few years later and they had a big wire mesh around the whole thing because students used to go up and throw themselves off the top of this tower when they failed their exams. <laughs> I mean is is that's that's the suffering, isn't it? We can't bear something like failing an exam. And yet in in an actual experience it's something we can bear. If we're mindful we can bear failing exams. That's bearable, but if you but if you think you can't bear it, then then you're suffering from if you f- fail, then you then you suffer because you can't you take it as a as something you can't bear anymore. So you throw yourself off the tower. Now this is I don't this is this is a for reflection and contemplation, just to, to try to encourage you to to examine suffering in terms of what is it that is bearable, like physical pain, it's bearable. But the emotional re- aversion to it is unbearable. And we create that side, we create that suffering, that's something we create out of our ignorance. So we can stop creating it. We don't have to do that. Once we see it, we can we can stop creating suffering uh, about the way things are, about what we're experiencing. Now you might think I'm suffering about this appeal in November. <laughs> But I can bear that. <laughs> something one can bear. It's all right. But um, and if I and if I start if I start worrying about it, then I'm suffering. Oh, what will I what will I happen? Oh, I have to give evidence. Have to be a witness and have to be cross-examined and all these awful things. And uh, then I'm suffering. If I if I'm 
if I'm creating a lot of negativity around it. But I know that those things are something I can bear. You take them as they come and you somehow sometimes they can even they can be surprisingly pleasant or interesting or whatever. But you can you can uh, imagine, you know, before anything ever happens that it's going to be absolutely horrible when it might not be at all. And even if it is, we can bear it. That we can bear, the stuff coming at us from outside, but it's the, what we compound, what we project onto life out of our ignorance, that is the dukkha the Buddha is pointing to. And that is the dukkha we can let go of. So the second noble truth is the truth of letting go of these desires. So to let go of something doesn't mean you get rid of it because one of the kind of desires is desire to get rid of things, remember. So letting go doesn't mean throwing everything away or getting rid of things. It means letting things be. Noting them, letting, not trying to you know, to get rid of things you don't like or trying to, uh, you know, always be in trying to control and manipulate everything around you, but to to let go of the world and to watch it, to be, to let it be what it is and to, but be alert to it, be uh, aware of it. So that these desires then, because they arise, they cease. So you're letting desire that has arisen you're letting it cease by letting go of it. So this letting go of desire, to let go of desire you have to know what desire and and attachment are. So one can contemplate the nature of desire as one is desiring things. Not taking this not taking the view I shouldn't desire anything. If I were a good Buddhist, I wouldn't desire anything. That's being very idealistic. Isn't it? If I were a proper Buddhist, I wouldn't have desires. is is unrealistic. Uh, it's uh, the Buddha didn't say you shouldn't have desires. He said to understand desires and to let go of them, not to get rid of them, but to 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 know the desires as desire so that it doesn't delude you. That kind of energy that's always wanting something or wanting to get rid of something. That sense of, notice that tension in your mind and how, you know, just wanting and desires aiming at anything. Uh, it'll, you know, it'll, whatever is around, you you find just, the desire will, will go towards it. Or the desire, a lot of the desires, say, of a, of a spiritual, spiritually evolving person is desire to get rid of things. They're kind of righteous desires, like desire to get rid of anger. That seems like a good thing to desire, doesn't it? To get rid of anger, not be angry. To get rid of jealousy. Jealousy is awful, isn't it? it and to get rid of it, I desire to get rid of it, sounds like a, a righteous kind of desire. You know, it's right to desire to get rid of it. 
So in sometimes in in uh, you know in the when you're getting into the spiritual development, you can be taken over by high-minded desires, which is one of the dangers of religion, isn't it? The holier-than-thou problems and the the uh, desire to to kill off, to kill the devil, isn't it? The desire to to annihilate evil. They're they're kind of they have a kind of righteous quality to them. They sound like they're right. But one there's a whole history, isn't it? The history of religion is filled with 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 the kind of self righteous hypocrisy. Isn't that it's one of the problems all religions have? Is that the, is that one can be caught in one's own sense of rightness and not see the attachment to the desire to get rid of maybe the heretic or the desire to get rid of the infidel or the desire to thinking that burning the witches is is getting rid of evil or that we should uh, kill off the evil demons or we should destroy those those uh, terrible, that terrible group of people that are doing everything wrong, or or this this ethnic cleansing in uh, in Yugoslavia, or uh, all these kind of things that they're the idea of, of racial purity and and uh, and protecting the religion by killing off its enemies, or you know, protecting the Bible uh, by killing off those who want to destroy the Bible. Always this, the logic is there, the kind of from the dualistic mind. But in in the in the act of trying to destroy, in the name of God or righteousness, is is the is this vipawadanha, the desire to get rid of, and then it takes us to suffering, to increased amount of suffering. And if you notice in, uh, in religions, the way that proper religions, true religions, don't, don't destroy evil. They aren't destroying or annihilating evil. They're understanding it. They know what it is. So the Though they, uh, the Buddha, when when Mara, when the Mara is the tempter or the devil in Buddhism, when Mara would tempt the Buddha, the Buddha would say, "I know you, you know, you can't fool me." And so the way of the Buddha is to is to see things clearly, so that the, the evil has no power, because evil things have power through delusion, through through creating this desire in your mind to either get something you don't have or get rid of something. Evil has a, if it, if it can frighten you, it can keep you frightened and, and uh, anxious, then it has power over you. If you're frightened of evil, if you hate it and, 
and want to destroy it, then that then it has power. So the aim of of the Buddha is to understand evil, know it, I didn't know what it is. I know you, Mara. You can't fool me. You can't delude me. So this is why we reflect on the evil, good and evil aren't fixed absolutes. They're relative, aren't they? Some, you have, there's no absolute kind of fixed goodness or evilness. These, these are words that, that imply a state of, of, of change and relativity. So when you, when you try to absolutize good, like saying, you could say, Christianity is good. And that's it. You know, you kind of made your statement and it's good, uh, kind of permanently good. But that's not really the case, is it? it goodness is, uh, is, is determined by time and place. You can use you know, like a, a Buddha Rupa, Buddha image. You could use it to, to inspire your mind, to remember the Buddha, to, to uh, reflect on the virtues of the Buddha, to, to encourage you in your practice, uh, to emulate the Buddha. You could do, use it for all kinds of good things, or you could use it to bash somebody over the head with. So, the Buddha Rupa, <laughs> its goodness deter- is determined upon, on how you use it, isn't it? It's up to you. It's not in, in itself, it is what it is. It's, it's neither good nor bad, it is what it is. But when we use it in the right way, what, it's in, what is it intended for? Like this, this Buddha Rupa, what, what, is it, what, it's, what is its purpose? If it's for spiritual liberation, and then we, we learn how to relate to it in a way that it encourages that. Or we could use it as a weapon. A few years back, uh, there was a group down in uh, Bognor Regis, some kind of fundamentalist Christian group, down on the coast. <coughs> they had little pamphlets they were passing out with uh, a cross breaking a Buddha Rupa. Because there was this, this Christian cross, and it was hitting this Buddha Rupa. <laughs> and this, this uh, fundamentalist group was, uh, was were, they were, uh, you know, against all other religions and, the, and Buddhism. And they must have known about us. I don't know why they particularly chose Buddhism, but one, I began to feel, take it quite personally, in fact, it's a kind of ugly picture. But it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a poorly drawn cartoon, actually. But it was meant in all seriousness that Christianity is that which destroys these pagan religions, these forces of evil. And so it actually the cross was being used as a weapon to, to hit the Buddha, to kill the Buddha. And this, was, this is the kind of primitive thinking of fundamentalists, isn't it? So a cross, is that what, is that, in, you know, in the 
and the proper use of Christian symbolism is a cross used to be used as a weapon to destroy things. But it can be used as a weapon to destroy things, isn't it? It's not because it was meant to be that, but it was. That's not what its symbolic value is in. But it can be used for that. So, so good and evil are relative to. That's where we need the wisdom to be able to, to have that sense of of what is appropriate now. What is right now because there's no absolute right or wrong and that takes uh, the wisdom isn't the mind in its in its open reflective state to be able to respond to to the changingness of life rather than to try to freeze life in fixed perceptions because it doesn't work that way life isn't this is a this is a dynamic flow and movement, the energy that we're all involved with, and but we can we can kind of fix on it with our with our ability to think. We can we can freeze things, and we can live in a in a in the realm of our own thinking, with absolutizing relative things. We can we can create. The, the impression that there is an absolute right and wrong and I'm the one that knows. These are right and those are wrong. <laughs> those you get rid of, those you, you don't. Uh, and that's one thing I think we've all felt in, in the, the, the old Christian attitude that I was brought up with was that Christianity was right and every, every other religion was wrong. So absolutely sure. These my my background of Christianity was very much Christianity was right, and that made everything else wrong, because the the it tended the the mind tended to get stuck in these in these uh, perceptions. They they tended to have a kind of absolute fixity to them. But when you're investigating Dhamma, you realize it's right and wrong, good and bad are relative. Because everything is in the process of changing. Nothing's ever the same. And to be able to to contemplate change, then this anicca, is a way of, of sharpening our wisdom sword, our faculty for understanding and knowing things as they are. So the first two noble truths, first noble truth is there is suffering, this there is dukkha. Dukkha should be understood. Now this is the going to the to to admit it, to know it, to, to feel it. Feel the dukkha, feel the suffering, uh, embrace it, un- stand under it. So you you're actually with it, accepting it for what it is. Then you can then you can get, then you can see that the suffering. You can investigate this this suffering if you've got it and you're looking at it, and you're not just reacting with aversion to it and want to get rid of it. When you actually willingly accept it, 
then you can contemplate it and you begin to see why the suffering is there. It's because due to this attachment to desires. Wanting something you don't have, not wanting what you have. And so the the insight into the second noble truth is letting go of desire. And you can trace all suffering to grasping of desire. If in your life, if you're suffering, it's because you're grasping something. Like wanting, wanting one of the, the forms of suffering that, that parents have is wanting their children to be good and respectful and obedient and uh, grasping that desire and then feeling upset and hurt when the children aren't that way. <laughs> so one can be very, can suffer a lot because you want the world to be some way that it's not. And, uh, and, and the, so the, when you let go of that desire then you're more, you find that you can deal with the actual problems much better when you're not grasping a desire for them to to be some other way. Being abbot of a monastery, <coughs> the, the, I can suffer in this position of being abbot of Amravati. When I want Amravati to be to be harmonious and and I used to be very, want everybody to be in the morning chanting at five o'clock. I used to suffer a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that one. And uh, wanting every, all the monks to be at the morning chanting. And uh, then I realized that wanting all the monks to be at the morning chanting and grasping that desire was suffering. Grasping that desire, wanting wanting them something to be something that it seldom ever is. So <laughs> So one you know, not going not the kind of uh fatalistic resignation, but it but it is uh, willingness to let go of the desire anyway, and uh, and so that you're, you're not suffering. There's no point in suffering about these things because it just it has no, it serves no purpose. It tends to to uh, it doesn't do anyone any good, me or or the, or anyone else. When you see it, so then you you realize that that, that it, to let go of it. So when you when you want everyone to be at the morning chanting, you know that that's a, something you know some some mental state that you don't grasp. So you don't suffer when, as they you find, you go there and only three or four monks are there. <laughs> or wanting, um, uh, you know, the the sangha to be in harmony all the time. 
we have. Uh, I'm not so. I'm. This isn't such a problem with me, but but some monks are 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 harmony fanatics. Any sign of disharmony, they they just they can't bear it, and, and so they they want harmony all the time, you know. Just and uh, they get very upset when there isn't when there when there's signs of disharmony. But uh, so the desire even to have everyone get along and everyone to to be in in in, in a harmonious relationship, that grasping of that desire will always bring suffering because. You know, you you're all right when things are going well, but when they start changing, then you you suffer. You you feel angry or disappointed or let down by things when when they change, and they do change. You can't have permanent harmony in a community. It has to go through periods of disharmony. It has to. That's the way life is. It, uh, it's in people are going through their own changing. Uh, experiences and you can't just try to command them to be harmonious. The, the, the kind of tyranny, isn't it, where you you will be harmonious. <laughs> Hold a stick up here. Wanting people to understand you when they don't. <laughs> Not suffering. Wanting uh, you can see the suffering in, of wanting the, the uh, you know, in politics, say, for example, wa always thinking that the next election we'll get the we hope to get the the right one in <laughs> the one that exists usually the one that's in the present position usually isn't doesn't is has is let us down by now and that john majors we he's kind of let us down we we wanted him to be able to solve all the problems and he hasn't we hope <laughs> So we, next one, we'll, we'll try to elect someone next time who will be able to do that. And it's like, you know, wanting, wanting the Prime Minister to be able to solve all the economic, political problems uh, when they can't or won't. <laughs> so wanting something you don't have or not wanting what you have is is this, this kind of desire? Look at it, in, admit it, the, take an interest in, de, in the desire, not to, not to, not in the objects of desire, but in the actual desiringness of desire. That sense of, of, of feeling, always wanting something to to absorb into something, or to 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 get rid of things, wanting to 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 get rid of the the problems in in your family wanting to get rid of the noisy neighbors or the or the uh, the, the sound of traffic outside the out on the street or wanting to to get rid of of all kinds of things is that, that we the grasping of this desire is 
suffering. So investigate that. Take take this and kind of just contemplate it. What is the suffering? And what is grasping? What is desire? These three words. Suffering, dukkha, and desire is dhanha, and grasping is upadana. So that these are for investigation, for examination, to, to get to know them. So that when they when these things happen, you can say, I know you, Mara. You've taken away the power of delusion, of, of evil. It has no evil has no power if you if you know it. Completely disempowered the devil. So instead of killing the devil, you just disempower the devil. <laughs> Take away his power. This is the way of a Buddha. So now go back to the uh, here and now.